Well, we are in week three of a teaching series in what's called the book of Exodus. And Exodus is a book that tells the story of the greatest redemptive event in the history of God's people before Jesus. It's one chapter in the many chapters leading up to the greatest chapter of all, which is celebrated at Easter, when we talk about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so today we are continuing to immerse ourselves in this one story written by God from Exodus to Easter, and we are gonna be in Exodus chapter three. And so if you have a Bible, grab it, turn to chapter three, and we're gonna pick it up right away in verse one where it says this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he, God, said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, Moses, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So this is a history-changing moment for the people of God. So far in the story of Exodus, the focus has been on the experience of God's people in Egypt. In the first two weeks, we've seen that God's people have been enslaved by the foreign nation, Egypt. They are living among them, and then Egypt sees their numbers growing, and, and the king says, Let's make them our slaves. They're experiencing incredible hardship. They're experiencing back-breaking work with no end in sight. And they've cried out to God. They've howled from the inside out to God, asking him to do something, but nothing's happened. We've seen this, this mixture of blessing and hardship for God's people in Israel, that God is at work fulfilling his creation mandate to see his people be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. But that blessing early in the story of Exodus has been eclipsed by the horrible realities of slavery and the silence of God. And then in chapter two, a child named Moses is born into this world of slavery and danger. From his first breath, his life is in danger as the, Israelite fair, uh, the Israelites have been uh, told and have been condemned to have their firstborn baby boys killed by Pharaoh, this national policy. Moses is born, born into this world 
a world where rescue is wanted, but rescue does not seem to be coming. And so from the perspective of God's people on the ground, there's little or no hope in Egypt, at least until the end of chapter two, because then we start to see a glimmer of hope emerge in the darkness. And so right before the text we just read, we read these words in Exodus chapter two, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. So the king who had ordered all firstborn Israelite babies to be killed, he died. And yet the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This is Exodus setting the stage for God to move, for what is about to unfold in the chapters ahead. It takes us out of where Moses is just before this in Midian, back to Egypt to remind us how bad it is for God's people. But more importantly, in this moment, we are actually brought up into heaven. Exodus pulls the curtain back and we are allowed for a moment to see things from the perspective of heaven, from the perspective of God. And what do we see here? Well, we see that God heard, God saw, God remembered his promises to his people and God knew. He knew what his people were going through and he knew what needed to be done to bring them out of, out of slavery into freedom. God knew it was the time for rescue to begin. And so as chapter two ends, we're being pushed to view the situation on the ground in Israel through the eyes of God, through the eyes of heaven. God wasn't disinterested. He wasn't unaware of what was going on for his people, but rather he did see, he did know, he did hear their cries, and now he is going to do something about it. This God is going to act. This God is going to set his people free. We don't know why he took so long to do it. We don't know why he waited until this moment in time to act. That's a mystery. That's something well beyond us and our human comprehension. But what we do see is that there is a God, that he is present and he is going to act. And so the question that begins to emerge as we move into chapter three is who is this God? Who is this God that heard and saw and remembered his covenant? Who is he? And it's an important question to ask for all of us, regardless of where we're at in our understanding or thinking about God and who he is and whether or not he exists. It's actually so important, and one writer named A.W. Tozer wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now that might seem extreme to you, but I don't think we should take that idea lightly. Because if there is a God, and he does exist, and he can be known, and he is active in this world, well then, what we think about him, what we know about him matters. In fact, it matters greatly for us and how we live and how we view God and how we interact with people for all of our lives. And so you might be here today and you might be asking questions. Is there a God? Does he exist? And if this God is there and he does exist, what's he like? Now, those are some really good questions and you might be here today, you might be asking those very same questions and those, my friend, are great questions to ask. Or maybe you're here today and you believe there is a God and you do believe that he can be known and that you are maybe in a relationship with him. And maybe for you, you don't need convincing that there's a God. Maybe for you, it's about knowing this God in a deeper way than you currently do. 
Because for all of us, no matter where we land on this spectrum, the essence of Christianity is to know God. One scholar explained it like this. He said, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? To know God. This is the heartbeat of the faith system called Christianity. Jesus himself spoke about these things in one of the biographies about him called John. In John chapter 17, he says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So in other words, eternal life is the kind of life that we were created for. It's the kind of life that we're searching for. It's the life we hunger for, we want, we're desperate for. And that this life is found in knowing the God of the universe. It's a life, yes, that lasts forever, so it's one of duration, but it's also more deeply about the life of God that we receive and we get to experience ourselves when we know him and his son, the one he sent to die for us. And so at the end of the day, boil it all down, it's all about knowing God. It's all about knowing Jesus. And the reality is, is that knowing about someone is not the same as knowing them. See, we can know a lot about someone. We can see someone from afar. We can read about them online. We can hear people tell us stories about them. And so we can think that we know someone by knowing about them, but there's a great difference to actually knowing someone personally and deeply through life-on-life experience. And in the Christian faith, our goal, our pursuit is to know God personally for ourselves in ever deeper ways, to make our home in him, to abide in him as the scriptures say, and in his love. And we need to be reminded of that from time to time or be introduced to that if we are exploring who Jesus is. Is that the essence of Christianity is to know God. And so again, the question is, who is this God that we meet in the story of Exodus? Who is this God that we meet in the story that is written on the pages of the Bible? Well, the Bible, when we read it, the very first line begins with this idea that there is a God. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so right from the opening words, the opening page, the opening line of the entire story written in the Bible, it says God exists and he is the main character of the drama in history. He created the universe. He created humans. He is at work in the world to restore what has been broken. He is alive. He is the God of the human drama story in the world. And as verse six tells us in chapter three in Exodus is that he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, these, these men were the significant leaders that God chose to partner with to form for himself a people that would know him and be a blessing to the world. And so what we see is that the Bible from beginning to end is a story of God and his working within the world he created and in the lives of people. He's the God who walked with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He guided them and led them. He's the God who brought his people to Egypt. He's the God who brings blessing amidst oppression and slavery. And he's the God who watched over Moses when he was a baby to protect him during his early years from the threat of, of Pharaoh and the genocide that he was orchestrating. And here in Exodus 3, we see that this God is called Elohim. It's a Hebrew word that means the one true God, Yahweh. 
the God who is full of power and is guiding all history to fulfill his purposes. He's the God who has revealed himself and has bound himself to a people, the people called Israel. The people whose lineage can be traced all the way back to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham, where it all began. This is the God of history. This is the God of Exodus. And so Moses, in this moment, at the burning bush, he is not in the presence of a new God. He is not in the presence of an unknown God. He's in the presence of a God with a long history of being with his people. A God who's faithfully worked through ordinary and flawed people to bring his promises to pass. And now, in this moment, in Exodus 3, the God of the past is beginning to move in the present and he starts with Moses. Now is the time. God is going to move. He is going to do something about his people and their situation in Egypt. What we're doing is we're being invited into the realm and the experience of God and what he is doing in the world. And we're invited to see something as this God comes and encounters Moses, that there is a God, that he is at work and he has been all the way since he created the world. And so when we're in that hard places of our lives, when our prayers aren't being answered in the timing or the way that we want, when there doesn't seem to be an end in sight to the situation that we're in, the end of chapter two reminds us, it invites us to say that what we see and experience isn't always the whole picture. In fact, it's not the whole picture. There's more going on than we can see or know. And so I'm grateful for how Exodus pulls back the curtain at the end of chapter two. And it lets us see from God's perspective. It lets us see things from the eyes and the perspective of heaven. And how it sets us up to the reality that now, after something like 430 years of slavery, God is going to act. And it's all gonna start with one person, Moses. And that's where our passage picks it up. We go from heaven all the way down to earth. And read this, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why this bush is not burned. So the question is, how did Moses get here? Like, how did he get way out in the wilderness, weeks away from his home, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep? Well, chapter 2 tells us that Moses is actually a fugitive, that he is on the run after killing an Egyptian slave master who was beating an Israelite slave. And that he's actually been living in the desert as a shepherd in a foreign land for something like 40 years when we meet him at the burning bush. This is the story of Moses up to this point. He's a shepherd in the wilderness, in a foreign land, as a fugitive from the Pharaoh. 40 years is a long time. It's a significant time in the book, uh, uh, in the Bible. And what we know is that Moses, when he was in Egypt, before he arrived in this exile state, is that he wanted to see God's people free. That's why he acted in the way he did when he saw the Egyptian attacking and beating one of his fellow Israelites. He wanted his people to be free, but he was trying to be the rescuer and it wasn't the right time. And so God allowed him to go out into the desert to live in exile for these amount of years. And then all of a sudden, as God so often does, he shows up 
in an unlikely way in our lives to begin to move and to call us into something that he is going to do, which is what happens to Moses. Moses is out on an everyday trek. He's grazing uh, his sheep in the pastures and he sees a bush that is on fire that isn't burning up, which is you don't see that every day. I mean, I'd go check that out too if I was Moses. And so he goes over there and that's where it starts to get really good because as Moses turns aside and goes to see what is going on, he encounters God. He encounters God. Verse 2 tells us the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now there's some debate over who the angel of the Lord is. Is it a heavenly being sent by God with a message? Is it a pre-incarnate Jesus? Who is this angel of the Lord? It's a mysterious figure it's definitely a messenger from God, but I think contextually it's safe to say that this being is closely identified with God and is God himself. And the reason I think that is, look at what verse 4 says. It says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So it's not the angel of the Lord anymore, it's God himself calling to Moses from the bush. There's a switch that happens, and then there's the description of the angel that says, the angel appeared to Moses in a flame of fire. Now, fire is a sign of God's presence in Exodus. And we're going to see that over and over again as we continue on in this teaching series. And fire is also a way uh, the Bible talks about how God appears to humans. And we see that in Hebrews 12 and Deuteronomy 4, that God is called a consuming fire. Later in Exodus, we see that God shows himself to Israel as a pillar of fire and that he comes down in fire to rest on a mountain before all of Israel to see. And so however you distinguish between the angel of the Lord and God, the reality is that as Moses draws near to the bush, he's met by God. The eternal creator of heaven and earth is face to face with Moses. And here we have the main character of this story come out from behind the scenes and take center stage. And he calls out to Moses, Moses, Moses. And when Moses comes near, God begins to reveal himself and his plan to rescue his people. So again, we ask, who is this God? In this story from Exodus 3, what do we learn about this God? Well, the first thing we see is that this God is holy. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he, God, said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This is the first time that the word holy is used in the Bible, and it's significant that it's used in connection and relationship with God meaning that Moses is in the presence of a holy God. This God is so holy that the ground that Moses is standing on, which is normal ground, it's, it's normal soil, it's not perfect, it's not special, it's common, but because the presence of God is there, the ground becomes holy. It becomes holy because God is holy and he is there. And that word holy means sacred. It means set apart. It's a word that's used to talk about God's identity, who he is, that he is marvelously holy, that he is white hot in holiness. He's purely good. There's no stain of evil or darkness within him. He is light and pure and good through and through. 
So it's a word used to talk about God, but it's also a word to talk about where God is. See, wherever God is, that place becomes holy ground. And it's hard for me, for us, to put into words just how holy God is. I mean, we don't have adequate words in the human language to fully capture the holiness of God. The best we can do is to use metaphors or pictures like here. God's holiness is like a finding a burning bush on a mountain that isn't consumed by the fire, that you have to keep your distance from because if you come any closer, it wouldn't turn out well for you. Or what about the last book of the Bible called Revelation, where it describes Jesus like this in chapter one. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the, shining, the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, if I came face to face with that too, I'd fall down. See, the only way we can talk about the holiness of God is to use metaphors because he cannot be contained by our thoughts or images of him. His holiness breaks every category that we have. Everything he is is outside of all that we would consider normal and common. And so to be in his presence, like Moses is here, is to be in the presence of someone completely sacred, completely set apart, something different, something uncommon, beyond anything that we can fathom, beyond any sense of what we can put into words, so much so that like Moses, we have to take off our sandals and bow before him or hide our faces in fear because we're in the presence of someone completely greater when we're in the presence of God. And the holiness of God, well, it's not safe. And so God says to Moses, don't come any closer. If you come any closer, it's not gonna end well. And yet, even though God is holy, at the same time, he's approachable. Like here, God invites Moses in. He calls to him. He allows him to come close, but not too close. So God is approachable. There's this paradox with this holy God that holiness is something that God invites us into, but it is also something that is dangerous. And I love the story from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe written by C.S. Lewis. It's a story that kind of illustrates this for me. And uh, it's the, the children, the main characters of Lewis's story, they're talking to some beavers and they're talking about Aslan, the great lion. It's kind of the Jesus figure in uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. And, and listen to how this conversation goes. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mr. Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, God is not safe, but he is so, so good. And being in his presence will make your knees knock. It'll make you fall on your face. It'll stir up overwhelming sense of fear and wonder and awe. 
because God is completely beyond us and yet God comes close to us. He wants to be near to us. He wants to have a relationship with us like here in Exodus and most ultimately in Jesus. God makes us a, a way for us to approach him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And God actually makes you and I holy and blameless in his sight when our faith is in Jesus. And so this God is holy and yet he's approachable. And it makes me ask, who is like our God? There is no one like our God. That's the answer. There is no God like him. He's in a class of his own. He has no rival or equal, but let's keep going because it keeps getting better. Watch and listen to the next words out of God's mouth after the holiness of God confronts Moses. Listen to what God says in verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So after revealing himself as so holy that you have to keep your distance, God's next words are, I've seen my people's misery. I've heard their howling cries to me, and I've come to rescue them. These are words of tenderness, compassion, kind words from a holy God. So the same God and the, and the same power that is too dangerous for us to approach fully and completely apart from Jesus, he's now showing us his heart. Again, we see twice actually in verse 7 and 8, and then if you go down to verse 9, God has seen, God has heard. He knows all about what his people are going through, and that has moved him to rescue them. Which leads us to this next thing about this God. This God is a rescuer. He doesn't just see us in our pain or our difficult circumstances, but he wants to and is willing and is able to rescue us from them. See, for the first time in Exodus, we now get to see that God has a plan to set his people free, to lead them out of slavery in Egypt to a wide and spacious and fruitful and abundant land, a place that he's prepared for them, a place that he actually promised to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This is God's plan. It's a two-part plan. He's going to come down and he's going to rescue his people from harm, from the evil of slavery, from the evil of genocide. He's going to set them free. He's going to break the chains and he's going to lead them out, which is part two, out of Egypt into the promised land. God's plan is rescue. He's going to break the chains of slavery. He's going to set his people free. This isn't a maybe or a might. This is a promise. This is a certainty. God is going to do this. What he says he'll do, he will do. And in the pages ahead, we're going to watch him do it. And it's such a vivid picture for me of God here, a holy God who is tender and loving and who wants to rescue. It helps us to see that God's rescue is motivated by God's character, that God's character is one of grace and compassion and love and forgiveness. Go to Exodus 34. There's a description of God's character. This is who I am, God says to Moses. I'm a God of grace and mercy, unending love, forgiveness, compassion. And it's just this character that propels him to act to be the kind of rescuing God that he is. This God is a rescuer. This is a, a beautiful moment for Moses, for Israel, for the story that God is writing. Rescue is coming. And yet, many of the people who were enslaved in Egypt would never see the promised land. Many of them would die. 
most of them, if not all of them, would die before their feet got to touch the land, the ground that God had promised them. Not even Moses is going to get into the promised land. He's going to get right up close to it, and then God says, no, you're not going in. So there's a tension here that we have to experience that is all too real and all too, too familiar for us, that God's rescue is real. He does rescue his people, but sometimes we don't get to see the promised land. And some of us, we know that all too well. We need rescue from our situation. We've been praying for God to move and to do something, and the hard reality is, is we haven't experienced that rescue yet, and we may never, ever experience it in this life. We may not get the rescue we need from cancer. We may not get freed from the crushing weight of debt. That relationship that was broken might not get mended in the way we hope. Kids may not come back. Prayers for God's intervention may not be answered like the way we want. We may not get the rescue we want, we need, and we're so desperate for in this life. And that's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to even speak those words out. And it's in that moment that we have to remember that God's rescue is real and that the ultimate rescue in the story of God is from sin and death, and that this rescue is the one we need more than any other, and that this rescue has already been accomplished in Jesus, that he, in his life, death, and resurrection, has rescued us and made it possible for everyone to be rescued from our enemies of sin and Satan and death, and that is the rescue we need more than any other. And so there's tension here. And in this story in Exodus, God's promise to Moses is that he will rescue his people, and then he does it. And his promise to you and to me is that, not that he's gonna rescue us from our situation, but that he's already accomplished a rescue that we need most, and that one day he will complete it fully when Jesus comes back. That's his promise. The promise that we can hold on to and find hope in the midst of our circumstances. So there's a tension here. God sees and knows what you're going through and his rescue is real. It's both. For God's people, and for Moses in Egypt, rescue is coming. God is going to do it. He's going to go with Moses to free his people. And that's where this part of the story ends. It ends in verse 10 with God saying to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses is going to have a key part in this plan. That God is going to go with Moses and Moses is going to be the one to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt. He's God's instrument in God's hands on the ground to see this happen. And next week, we're going to see how Moses responds to this and how God says, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to do this through you. But for now, we sit in the reality that God has revealed himself and he has a plan and that this God is, a, is holy. He's a rescuer. He's faithful and he's good and he cares about us and he wants to partner with us to fulfill his purposes in the world. This is the God of Exodus. But he's not just the God of Exodus. He's the God who is here right now. He's there in the space that you're in. He's present among us. He was there before you sat down and you hit play on this video. God is holy and he is here. This whole time, we've been in the presence of a holy God, the same God that Moses encountered at the burning bush on that holy ground all those year, years ago is here and is among us and he is inviting us to respond to him. And so as we close, how do we respond to this God? The God who is holy and the God who is here. Well, I think there's a lot of different ways, but I think two that jump out from this story that actually we see in Moses the first is cultivate curiosity. 
See, it's no accident. Moses is hovering around the mountain of God. He's hovering around the place where God is known to be present and will reveal himself here in the burning bush, but also elsewhere in the story of Exodus. He's around the place where God is. His eyes are up. He's curious about what is going on around him. He sees it and he's willing to step into it. There's this curiosity that we see in Moses. And so the first thing I would say is how do we respond to this God is we cultivate a curiosity. We, we, we want to put ourselves in a position to encounter this God. We want to be curious about him. We want to ask questions. We want to get our eyes up and, and look around and see what God is doing. We want to be curious like Moses. And secondly, we want to seek holy ground. You know, to know God, you got to start by being with God. And then as you go through your life to look for his presence and his activity around you, take the risk when God shows up to go into his presence, take the risk to sit for five minutes a day and read his, the Bible and pray or sit in silence. But maybe today the best thing that we can do to get started is to pray. And so I have three simple prayers to, to help us cultivate curiosity and begin to seek the holy ground that is out there. And the three prayers are simple. God, show me your glory. Open my eyes to see you as you truly are. Reveal yourself to me, God. Show me your glory. Secondly, God, help me recognize the holy ground in my life. If you're active, if you're present, if you're doing stuff around me all the time, wherever you are, I want to be there because that's holy ground. God, help me recognize the holy ground in my life. And finally, God, cultivate a curiosity, curiosity in me, a willingness to open myself up to you and a willingness to take the risk to join you in what you're doing. That's how we cultivate curiosity. That's how we encounter God. That's how we find holy ground in his presence.